Well, it is my very great privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning, and we are in Galatians chapter 2. We've been spending a, a few weeks now in this uh, one passage, and we will uh, round it off next week, but we are taking our time because we've hit, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, the section on doctrine now, and from here really on to the rest of the book, uh, we will have to slow things down and take our time. You know, when you study uh, a particular book of the Bible, whether it's Old or New Testament, and you come across narrative, uh, we treat narrative a little bit differently than we do the uh, the epistles, because in narrative, you, you can't really go verse by verse, you know. Um, you get Jesus uh, leaving or getting on the boat and, and taking the boat across to the other side, um, you know, you, you read something like that, and it, it's just really informational. <laughs> so the narrative has to be taken as a big chunk. And as you read the story, it's from there that we draw out the uh, enduring principles for us. Uh, and uh, when we come to epistles, however, we hit some, some pretty heavy doctrine. Now, the first chapter was um, mainly narrative. Paul recounting his, uh, his testimony in order to prove the point that his gospel and his commission came from Christ alone on the road to Damascus. He didn't receive either of those from anybody. But now, now Paul dives in to, uh, to doctrine, the, the doctrine of justification, specifically justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the banner that the Reformers raised so many years ago. It is a tremendous doctrine, and that's why we're taking our time. And what makes this a little bit more uh, challenging for us, as I pointed out last time, you might remember that Paul establishes three sound doctrinal truths in Galatians 5, 15 to 21 in a context where he's countering the Judaizers' arguments to his message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So it's in that context that we have to understand what the Judaizers are saying. Well, what were they saying exactly? What were they arguing? We considered the first one that we pulled out of verses 15 and 16 last time. Uh, the premise of their argument there goes like this. Ethnic Jews are born into a special relationship with the law and therefore into a special category of people who enjoy a higher status before God than anyone else. That is, they are not sinners like the Gentiles, essentially. Now, by this, they meant that they don't live lives that are sinful like the Gentiles because they have the law to guide them into all righteousness. They grew up with the law. And the implications that follow from this faulty premise are tragic for fellowship. One implication was that Jewish Christians would sink, really, to the status of Gentiles and be just as sinful as they are if they were to abandon the law as a means of justification and simply put their faith in Christ alone. But that wasn't going to happen. In fact, and here's the second implication, if there's going to be any equality between Jew and Gentile, it's the Gentiles that need to rise to the special status of the Jews by becoming Jews and trusting 
in the law as well. Now you can see how this premise, along with these implications, can actually tear the body of Christ apart. And Paul shows them their error. As to their premise, Paul says Jews do not enjoy a higher status before God just because they have God's law. In fact, history shows that the Jews broke God's law continuously, which we would argue makes them worse. Worse sinners than the Gentiles because they knew better. This is Paul's very point, in fact, in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. Speaking to the Jewish Christians, he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and distinguish the things that matter, being instructed from the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the people who are blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, possessing in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore, who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one is not to steal, do you steal? You who say that one who is not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who loathe idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And it's true. Now Paul lays down as as a result of this the first doctrinal truth that counters this particular error of the Judaizers. He says, with respect to ethnic Jews, the old covenant who, who grew up with the Mosaic law, including himself, even we, he says, we needed to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by Christ and not by the works of the law. His last word in verse 16 is absolute. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So unsaved Jews are really no better than unsaved Gentiles, truth be told. In fact, Paul would even say that, Romans 3, verses 9 to 12. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is no, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. great example of this was Paul himself. If anyone could claim to be justified by the works of the law, well, it would have been him. But he tells the Philippian church, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. I count them as mere rubbish. Now, that was last time. We come to the second argument here of the Judaizers raised against Paul's gospel of grace. It's in verse 17. Now keep in mind, Paul is refuting the Judaizers' arguments, right? So we we have to reconstruct their argument on the basis of what Paul says here. And it's not difficult, really, at all. According to verse 17, the Judaizers' second premise was this. If anyone 
especially a Jew, exercises faith in Christ apart from the law to be justified before God, he transgresses the law and he becomes a sinner and Christ becomes nothing more than a servant of sin. That's essentially what they were arguing. Where do we get that? Well, verse 7. Uh, sorry, verse 17. Paul says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Far from it. It would appear that the Judaizers were saying that Paul's gospel of grace makes Christ a servant of sin. Well, how exactly was Paul guilty of this? Here's how they argue. When you call a Jew to trust in Christ alone to be justified before God, you are calling him essentially to abandon the faith in the law. And once he does that, he puts himself in the same sinful category with the Gentiles. If this is the message that Christ gave to Paul, well, then Christ becomes a minister of sin. Do you see the progression? Jesus is really calling us, Jews, to disregard the law, to be justified, which is a violation of the law itself. And so he leads us to sin. Now, that's what they were accusing Paul of actually teaching. Paul answers this second premise with a hard negative, far from it. Or we could say, perish the thought. Christ is no minister of sin. And he gives three reasons why this second premise is wrong. Three reasons. One in verse 18, one in verse 19, and one in verse 20. And that's about all we have time for. So let's consider the first reason in verse 18. Very simply, Paul says their premise is wrong because... The law condemns. The law condemns. Going back to the law to be justified will only condemn you. Paul says, verse 18, Look, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, then I prove myself to be a wrongdoer. Now, let's open this up a little bit. Paul's not speaking so much personally when he says I, but more generically. If I or anyone else for that matter, is more the idea. It makes no difference who engages in this rebuilding, whether it's a Hellenistic Jew from Galatia, a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, or even the Apostle Paul himself. Anyone would be wrong to do this. Okay, that's clear, but what does he mean by rebuild? Rebuild what? Well, Paul says what he wants destroyed. Well, what's that? Well, that would be his condemning relationship to the law. He, too, once had been under the mistaken notion that to keep God's law was his means of salvation and of staying saved. And he was fanatical about it as well. You remember, far above his own countrymen, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But at the same time, Paul hadn't realized that the law only condemned him. Now hold your place here, and let me show you something important to our study uh, in Galatians 2 from, uh, from Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks of his prior relationship to the law as an unsaved Jew. And God's law that he gave to save Jews as their means of sanctification under the old covenant became for unsaved Jews a means of condemnation. 
And here's how Paul puts it in chapter 7, verse 13. In order that sin might be shown to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good, the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What's he mean? He means that God's law is good. Make no mistake about that. We could describe it really as the essence of his character. It's holy. It's perfect. And for saved Jews, it was their delight. The champions of righteousness of old rejoiced in God's law. They loved it. They meditated on it. and They were instructed by it. They lived by it so that their lifestyle would reflect the holiness of God who could then dwell with them. And when they broke it, well, they made a sin offering to restore fellowship. But this very same good and holy law that facilitates sanctification became nothing more than an instrument of death and condemnation to anyone who was not saved. Unsaved Jews understood, or or stood rather, condemned by the law, even though they thought that they were being saved by it. And the moment Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he knew instantly that he was a condemned sinner. The law had done its job in revealing Paul's sin to him. Now let's just pause here for just a moment of application, all right? Instead of saving all of this to the end, let's Let's do something different. I want, to, I want to make an application here right away. The great thing about God's law is that it shows people, on the one hand, that they are sinners and utterly helpless to overcome their sin. And on the other hand, it points, it points to their hope in Christ, who has kept the law from, for them. Now, Paul would talk about this in greater detail in Galatians chapter 3. We find an application of this truth in the area of our evangelism. If the law is designed to reveal sin in a person's life, in an unbeliever's life, and point that unbeliever to Christ as his only hope of enjoying an intimate relationship with a holy God, well then we should preach the law before we preach the gospel. And I want you to think about that and And incorporate this into your evangelistic strategies, because this is what the Bible does. It's it's an important combination to remember. One is meant to facilitate the other. The law leads to the gospel. Law and gospel. Law and gospel is what we need to get into our heads. If you have to help a person first realize that he is totally helpless to save himself, or to win God's favor, either by works of the law or by any kind of work, whether it's charity or philanthropy. If a person cannot meet God's standard of perfection, then you will help him to see that he remains in condemnation, period. His only hope is to turn to the one who's met this perfect standard and offered up on behalf of the sinner an acceptable sacrifice to God. That's Jesus Christ. All right, well, getting back to the flow of our thought then, once a staunch Jew with a wrong understanding of the law meets the Lord Jesus Christ, he turns from his futile attempts to keep the law on his own, and he trusts Christ. And it's in this context that we understand what Paul means in verse 7 
by rebuilding what he once destroyed. Rebuilding here obviously refers to turning back to a relationship that one had with the law before his conversion, which was a condemning relationship. And if one does that, he succeeds only in in proving himself to be a wrongdoer, that is, a violator of the law. You see, there has always been two ways of being saved from eternal condemnation. Two? I thought there's only one way. Well, hear me out. One sure way to be saved is to keep God's law perfectly, both in your thought life as well as in your behavior. Now, the problem with this is twofold. In the first place, while you might think that you could keep it in your behavior, you will be unable to keep it on the level of the thought. The moment you are sinfully angry with somebody, you have just committed murder. The moment you, ju- you lust after somebody, you've just committed adultery. And the moment you covet after someone else's possessions, you've just committed theft. But it's worse than that. In the second place, you wouldn't even have a chance to show whether you could keep the law perfectly because you were born with a sin nature and condemned right out of the gate. In short, your sin nature would show itself in your actions and your attitudes. Let's get something straight. People do not become sinners because they sin. They they sin because they're sinners to begin with. You plant a rosebush seed and it's only a matter of time before it produces thorns and a beautiful bloom. The plant produces fruit in keeping with its nature and the same is true of fallen people. Lost individuals, they don't become sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners to begin with. But the difference is important. If you say that people don't become sinners until they sin, then you're arguing that people are born innocent and can actually maintain that state of innocence. But the Bible's pretty clear. The reason people sin is because they are conceived with a sin nature. David says so himself in Psalm 51.5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, David does not mean that his mother conceived him in some illicit, sinful relationship, but rather that David himself was born with a sin nature that he received at the moment his mother conceived him. And if this is true, and it is, Well, then people cannot help but sin. They're obligated to because this is the relationship that they have with sin. They not only have a condemning relationship with God's law, but they're also slaves to sin. Listen to Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. The old man was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from this relationship to sin. Verses 10 and 11. For the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So trying to keep the law to be justified before God does not get anyone saved, but further establishes his sin and his condemnation. 
This way is clearly not open to us. So the only other way to be saved, which is open to us, is to trust the work of Christ alone, who was born without a sin nature and kept the law perfectly, both in thought and deed. Paul lays down then this second biblical truth. He says, come to God on the merits of Christ alone. That's the gospel of grace. Reverting to the first way of salvation then, that is going going it alone, trying to keep the law by your own might, is what Paul means by rebuilding what you have already destroyed. To rebuild is to turn back to your condemning relationship with the law as a matter of salvation and justification. The Judaizers were telling the Jewish Christians in Galatia that they <clears throat> needed to do just that. And oddly enough, they told the Gentile Christians who never had a relationship with the law to also trust in it. Paul assures them, though, that if they do that, they remain in their sins and Christ is of no advantage to them. Now, Paul, Paul's second reason is in verse 19. His second reason why the premise of the Judaizers is false. He says this, I died to the law. That's the second reason. First reason was that the law condemns, the law kills. Second reason, verse 19, I died to the law. Look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. The last truth we examine in verse 18 was that the law kills. The law kills me. It condemns me. This truth says, I died to the law. There is a huge difference between those two statements, beloved. The first teaches that the law condemns all unbelievers specifically because they are lawbreakers. That is the purpose of the law. It's meant to expose sin in the unbeliever's life and condemn him. But in that case... The unbeliever remains forever under this condemning relationship to the law. At the end of history, his condemnation will become reality, sadly. But when a person is born again, perhaps because the law did for him what it purposes to do, it exposed his sin in him and his guilt before God, and it condemned him, he sees that. And he is led to trust Christ for salvation. And at that very moment, he dies to his relationship with the law. In other words, when the law revealed to Paul that he was a sinner and deserving of God's wrath, that's its purpose, Paul turned to Christ and died to his condemning relationship to the law. Through the law, he says, I died to the law. He means that through the purpose of the law, I was led to Christ and I died to the condemning effects of the law. You see, the moment a person puts his trust in the work of Christ alone and is saved, he died with Christ, he was risen with Christ to a new life. He leaves his grave clothes behind in the grave. That is his slave relationship with sin and his condemning relationship with the law. It's there, buried. He enters a new relationship with Christ and he puts on new clothes. 
he clothes himself with Christ. And here's how Paul puts it in Romans 7, verses 4 to 6. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also, you also were to put to death, you also were put to death in regard to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were brought to light by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So this graphic language drives home the point that one dies to his condemning relationship with the law at the moment he trusts Christ. That person no longer has to fear the law or its condemning effects. He now meets the law's requirements in Christ, you see. So that condemning relationship to the law was destroyed when he died to it. The positive aspects of this verse reaches, I think, a crescendo in the last clause, so that I might live to God. It's ironic that the very law that God gave to guide believers in holy living can at the same time condemn unbelievers to death. Isn't that something? Do you know that there are certain supplements and vitamins that can cause harm to a person with a particular life-threatening illness? He would have to be healed first in order to then receive the benefits of the supplements and the vitamins. That's really the same way the law works. It is good and delightful only to those who have been spiritually healed by God's saving grace but it remains lethal to those who are perishing. Maybe you have a better understanding of Paul's argument to the Galatians here. Would I want to go back to trusting in the law for my salvation when it only condemns me and prevents me from living a life to God? And we find here another application or another applicable moment. Salvation... Paul says, is for the purpose of living for God. Now, you probably know that, but I wonder if you've ever thought through that. You see, American Christians have it backwards. Oh, yes. They think that salvation is so that they can be assured of heaven. There's truth, of course, in both of those statements, but the emphasis of one is completely different from the emphasis of the other and leads to different lifestyles. Do you understand the difference between the two? The American Christian way of thinking about the gospel is that it is all about me and my eternal security. And that really distorts the gospel. How does it distort the gospel? It gives the impression that salvation is just about reserving a secure place in heaven and that once you believe it, you can continue on and live your life the way you want. Do you see how that works? Yeah, it's sad to say, but this is the main emphasis of modern evangelicalism in America. It's an easy sell, too. Who wouldn't want to know that he has a place in heaven when he dies? And all you have to do is believe this, and you're in. That's it. 
It won't upset or change your life in any way. It won't interfere with the things that you love to do. It's promoted as if the biblical worldview is absolutely compatible with any secular lifestyle. Isn't that wonderful? It's portable. You can take it with you wherever you go. But nothing could be farther from the truth. This is not the gospel message, which, which brings us to what Paul says here. The purpose of salvation is that I can live for God, for the glory of God, and enjoy a relationship with him that will last for eternity. Now, the emphasis of that is very different, and it leads to a very different lifestyle. Salvation is all about God in this equation, and it does affect your life. It will turn it upside down, in fact. Even put it on the line. The New Testament asks, really, how badly do you want Christ? That's the question. You ought to know that those who trust Christ deny themselves to follow him, right? They take up their cross daily to follow him, a metaphor of death. If you're truly born again, beloved, you are willing and able to do this. The third reason that Paul gives is in verse 20. First one was, the law kills me. The second reason is, I die to the law. And the third reason is, I am a new person. I'm a new person. I'm no longer the person I was. I'm somebody different now. Look at verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is one of those verses that really could have been part of an early Christian creed or a a well-known response in a worship service by the congregation. I have no idea if it actually was either of those things, but if it wasn't, it should have been. Whether whether we could be certain or not, it's a verse that carries profound truth and hope for all Christians. Notice Paul's reference to having been crucified with Christ. He carries the theme of death and resurrection over from verse 19, which, by the way, he also talks about in Romans 6, first 10 verses. He teaches here that union with Christ means that all the experience of Christ becomes the Christian's experiences too. That's such a wonderful truth. That means that Christ's death for sin was the believer's death. Christ's resurrection was, in one sense, the believer's resurrection. Christ's ascension was the believer's ascension. So that the believer is, in one sense... Seated with Christ in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2 6. This is supported all the more by Paul's using the Greek perfect tense for the verb crucified. The Greek perfect tense is a tense that speaks of completed action, action in the past, done and over, once for all, completed, with ongoing results in the present. He died with Christ once. But that act has profound ongoing effects on Paul in the present. And that truth establishes another one. Paul is no longer the person he used to be. I know he's different. Every Christian, you and I, 
is raised with Christ, a new person with a different nature and, and as a temple where the Lord now resides. And to capture this truth, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does it mean that Christ lives in you? What does that mean? What, what else can it mean but that when you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you live, you live another person's identity, and that's Christ's. You live by his agenda. You carry out his will, listen to his word, pursue his goal with the strength he provides to bring about his glory. You pray to the Father in his name, you conform to his image, imitate his lifestyle, put him on, and look for his coming in the clouds. Your life is not your own, Your own, Paul told the Corinthian believers. It was bought with a price, and therefore glorify God with your body. Beloved, you take Christ wherever you go. He's there in whatever you do. Which means that the Christian life is the is very different than the secular life. We live Christ by faith. In fact, Paul adds, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God. The word flesh in this context is not a negative thing. It doesn't refer to sin. It actually, in this context, it, it, it simply refers literally to the human body that he lives in in the real world. Paul used the word this way in 2 Corinthians 10.3, where he says, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, in a real body, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. You know, with, with arrows and spears and things. No, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human. So he's talking to the Galatians about the way he is in real life, in person. We often ask people, who know famous people. What's he like in person? This is, this is what Paul's saying. And I want you to notice, he is the subject of the living by faith in the Son of God, which means he's responsible to exercise faith in Christ in all real-life situations. You ready for another application? What does it mean to live by faith? It means to live life with the guarantee that Jesus is Lord and has saved you from the bondage of sin. It also means that you live with the hope, the guarantee that the Lord will return for you. It means further that you will live with the firm trust in the Lord's promises that are every Christian's and also on the teaching of the Lord that is in the Scripture and with the firm belief that the Holy Spirit is working in you to will and to do according to the Father's good pleasure, it is what it, is what it means to live by faith. It means to take God at his word and apply it. It means to pursue it, his will clearly laid out in Scripture to redeem the times by investing in the future kingdom, to glorify God in our lives. That's what it means to live by faith. To put it in the negative, we don't live by any other creed or philosophy or worldview for our salvation or our sanctification. No, we trust neither tradition nor public conscience, neither gut feelings nor premonitions for life and godliness. To quote Solomon, we lean not on our own understanding 
Now, this is not to say that we Christians don't use our minds or reason. Now, the Lord gave us a mind to use, but we reason through our surroundings with the Scripture in mind and in hand. According to an article in Computer World, the world's most powerful microscope is housed in the Lawrence Berkeley National Library. I'm sorry, laboratory. It's called the Transmission Electron Microscope. Built in 2008 and standing 12 feet tall, it enables researchers to see 3D images of atomic structures. It uses an electron beam instead of light to see on that level. The creators of it boast that this microscope, quote, can see things that were not visible before. So it should open up new areas and new discoveries, especially in the area of nanotechnology, end quote. When a person is born again, made a new man, a new creature, he abandons his secular worldview for a biblical worldview. In other words, he trades in his household microscope of human wisdom for a transmission electron microscope that is the word of God. And he sees aspects of life through the lens of scripture that are not only necessary, but were never visible to him before his conversion. The Bible becomes our most powerful tool in this covenant life. It's our spiritual weapon that we use to destroy supernatural fortresses of someone's demonic ideology as a mirror to reveal our faults to us that we might address them as detergent with which to wash ourselves that we might be, have pure lives and as our lens through which we can observe and interpret life correctly. Our thoughts and our responses must be tempered with Scripture. We consider the matter before us and we go, we go to the word and we find out what we should, how we should deal with it. It's that simple. It's not complicated. Most of the time, the scriptures instruct us to go in a way that seems so sound and right and we take up that direction of righteousness with glee. At other times, straight, the straight way seems to defy logic or will surely worsen our situation, or attract some amount of hardship for us. But it's in those times that we must trust that God knows best, in fact, better than we do about our own situation, and that we obey. This is what it means <clears throat> to live by faith in the Son of God. Two premises down, one to go, We'll consider Paul's third argument in verse 12 next time. Our Father, we are thankful for this time together that we could open up the word, and especially this portion of your word that speaks to the gospel, that speaks to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. What a precious message that is, and one that has been guarded by your people down through the centuries, not just Paul, not just the reformers, but also the Puritans and others after them who have set an example for us. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be as zealous as they 
to preserve and protect and to preach and to live this very important message for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.